I would like you to use your imagination just for a moment this morning. And I want you to imagine an army recruitment campaign, but one that focuses only on the benefits of being in the army. So, free travel, of course. Smart uniform. Full board, inclusive package. All accommodation, meals and drinks provided. Adventure and excitement guaranteed. Learn new technical skills. Work as part of a highly motivated team. Excellent pension package. It would be a somewhat distorted view, wouldn't it, of army life if you weren't warned about the potential drawbacks and downside of being a soldier. The sleepless nights, the highly disciplined training regime, the sergeant major who's liable to shout at you and humiliate you, potential loss of sight or of various limbs, the post-traumatic stress disorder you might experience, the cold, the hunger, the dirt of the trenches, the danger you might face daily, the very fact that you may not even survive long enough to draw any of those excellent pension benefits. Now, you may be wondering, what on earth has all this got to do with Genesis 39? Well, I believe this is a trap that so often we as Christians can fall into today. Some begin the Christian life with a somewhat distorted view, I think, focusing only on the benefits and the blessings of being a Christian. And, of course, there are many. But uh, we need to also be aware that there are going to be difficulties. Christian life is a hard life at times. The Lord Jesus said to us, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, for I've overcome <coughs> the world. And it's very likely, I think, that Joseph, aged 17, we're told that at the beginning of Genesis chapter 37, at age 17, Joseph, I think, might have had a somewhat distorted view of the life of faith. He may well have been under the illusion that to believe in God was going to be a relatively easy thing. He was, after all, spoilt rotten by his dad, wasn't he? We're told, Genesis 37, verse 3, that his father Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his other sons. And as an expression of this unique love, Jacob makes for his special son this richly ornamented robe. Now, uh, it is Sir Andrew Lloyd Webber, I want to say, who's responsible for turning this into a, a technicolor dream coat. That's not what the Bible says. We don't know what color it was. Simply describes it as uh, being richly ornamented. Of course, there are all the exciting dreams that he'd experienced as a youth too. Seemed to suggest to Joseph that he was destined for a position of great power and authority, with even his brothers and ultimately his parents too bowing down to him and honoring him. But I suggest to you that by the time he reached Genesis chapter 39, all of these illusions will have been shattered. Uh, we're all familiar, I'm sure, with how the account unfolds. Joseph arrives in uh, Egypt as a slave, having been sold by his brothers who personally wanted to murder him, had a change of heart. And he arrives in Egypt, and he would have been right at the, uh, the bottom of the ladder, if you like, the very bottom rung when it came to slaves. He would have been given at the beginning all the very nasty and the dirty jobs. He wouldn't have spoken the language. He wouldn't have had a single friend in Egypt when he arrived. He'd have had no prospect of freedom or of marriage and uh, absolutely no hope of ever seeing his family again. If his life of faith had begun with a somewhat distorted view, blissfully unaware of the potential downside and drawbacks of being a believer, well, by Genesis 39, I think the harsh reality has hit home. Even those dreams of great power and authority will have uh, seemed, I'm sure, like a distant memory. And Joseph's experience of living the life of faith in a foreign land 
can help us, I believe, as Christians today. It can give us, firstly, some helpful insights into resisting temptation. I want us to look, firstly, uh, at uh, Joseph's temptation. Yes, it is. Joseph's temptation. And before we consider his strategy for resisting it, let's be sure, firstly, that we fully grasp the nature of the temptation. Uh, We're told, Genesis 39, end of verse 6, that uh, Joseph was well-built and handsome. Here is a good-looking guy. And this fact doesn't uh, escape the attention of his master's wife, who wants to have some fun with him. Verse 7, after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, come to bed with me. Now that is a, a, quite a polite translation of what the Hebrew actually says. In the original language, it's two words roughly translated. Uh, it's, uh, she's saying to Joseph, bed now. Okay? This is a direct order to a Hebrew slave. It's not a, a nice friendly invitation whispered over a glass of wine and a meal. Uh, notice too that this wasn't just a one-off attempt at uh, seduction. Uh, resisting uh, temptation, someone's sexual advances perhaps, can be uh, hard just doing that once. But what if it's persistent and continual? Uh, look at verse 10. We're told that Potiphar's wife spoke to Joseph day after day. This was the kind of dripping tap effect. Drip, drip, drip. There was, this was a relentless pursuit. She simply would not take no for an answer. In an employment situation today, there would be a clear case for uh, suing for sexual harassment. But Joseph had no employment rights. He was a slave. So how on earth does anyone resist that level of persistence and temptation? Well, there are several strands, I think, to Joseph's strategy. Joseph resists, firstly, I suggest, because of who he is. Now, I don't mean by that that he resists because of this um, this sort of um, feeling of grandeur that he has about himself, that he considers himself to be superior. Certainly, he had done uh, as a teenager. But rather, at this stage in his life, he recognizes and appreciates the unique responsibilities and uh, privileges that have been entrusted to him. Look what he says to Potiphar's wife. Uh, If you have a Bible there, chapter 39, verse 8, this is what he says in response to the temptation. With me in charge, he told her, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he is entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. So despite still being a slave with very little uh, hope of freedom, no rights to speak of, even so he's earned his master's complete trust and is clearly benefiting from uh, many privileges as a slave. In fact, there's only one thing Potiphar has withheld from Joseph and that's his own wife. It's pretty reasonable. Joseph has been blessed with a position of great trust and great responsibility. Now, of course, if you think about it, that kind of logic could have led Joseph to a totally different conclusion. He could have used this position of trust and responsibility to his advantage. And because Potiphar does not concern himself with anything in the house, well, for a start, he probably wouldn't have been around the house much. He trusted Joseph to get on with things. He'd have been out most of the day on on the golf course, or whatever the ancient Egyptian equivalent of golf was. He'd have been down at the chariot showroom, perhaps, checking out the latest model. We don't know. But do you see how Joseph could have reached an entirely different conclusion? I could get away with this. Pharaoh trusts me. He's never here. But instead he recognizes that he has been entrusted with great responsibility and he acts accordingly. 
Can I suggest that this morning, this is something that we can use in our own temptation. It may not be sexual. It may be all kinds of temptation. The, the temptation to gossip, to slander, the temptation to envy, to bitterness, whatever it may be, that we can use this as a motivation to resist. Because we too have a great responsibility as Christians. We are uh, we're representatives of Christ. We're ambassadors of Christ, the Bible tells us. And so we can use that sense of responsibility that God has given us to say, no, I'm going to honor God in this situation. I'm going to do the right thing. I'm going to say the right thing. I'm going to demonstrate the right attitude. Joseph resists secondly because he recognizes sin for what it is. Joseph calls sin, sin. He doesn't deny the gravity of it. Notice how he refers to it at the end of verse 9. He calls what Potiphar's wife is proposing a wicked thing. It's something contrary to God's revealed will in the Bible. It's a sin. It's a wicked thing. Now, we're in a culture where the word sin is, well, it's pretty much not used, is it? It seems to be a very old-fashioned concept. And I think it's a great danger that we allow that to creep into the church, where we, we don't like to use that word sin. It's a very negative concept. But we need to recognize sin as sin. We need to recognize things that God says no to in his word are wicked things. And particularly for his people, knowing the truth as we do, if we proceed anyway. Sin is very subtle. Sin often comes to us in disguise. It comes up wrapped up enticingly. It promises us fulfillment, satisfaction. It offers us relief from tension, boredom, frustration, loneliness, whatever it may be. Sin will try to convince us you deserve this. It's okay. God doesn't mind. We need this. That we, we shouldn't deny this urge that we have. It won't be good for us. But Joseph, he recognizes sin for exactly what it is. Such a wicked thing. He resists temptation thirdly because he loves God more than anything or anyone else. How do I come to that conclusion? Well, that little phrase which comes at the end of verse 9, is pretty revealing, I think. Joseph recognizes that his master Potiphar, as we've said, has put him in a position of great trust and blessed him with many, many privileges. So his reasoning in verses 8 and 9, if you look, is all to do with his human master. My master does not concern himself. Everything my master owns, he's entrusted to my care. My master has withheld nothing from me except you because you are my master's wife. So you would expect naturally that the conclusion he would reach is, how then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against my master? But he doesn't say that, does he? How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? And this is really important because Joseph's primary motivation for resisting this temptation is his fear of and his love for God. He sees that his ultimate master is in heaven. And that's true for all of us, isn't it? Whether we're working, whether we're retired, whatever we do, Ultimately, we're to, we're to do everything as if serving God. He is our master. And I wonder at those times when we manage to resist temptation, whatever kind of temptation it is, what is it, I wonder, that motivates us? Is it this fear of damaging our relationship with God? Or is it the fear of being caught or being seen in a bad light, perhaps, by others? Whatever it may be, I suggest that the best motivation for Fleeing from sin and temptation is actually this desire not to do damage to our relationship with God, not to dishonor him, not to displease him, because we love him more than anything or more than anybody else. Joseph resists fourthly, 
very simply because he flees. He flees from sexual immorality. Joseph is clearly conscious of his own weakness. He doesn't play with fire. He doesn't dance around the edges of sin. He doesn't flirt with it. He doesn't see what he can get away with, how far he can go. No, verse 8, we're told very simply, he refused. Uh, Verse 10, again, he refused to go to bed with her or even to be with her. He realizes he can't even be in the same room as this woman or else he's going to be tempted. And even when Potiphar's wife sets a trap one day, ensuring that none of the other uh, household servants are around, just as Joseph happens to clock on for his duties, even when she physically grabs him, verse 12, how does he react? He left his cloak in her hand and he ran out of the house. What does Paul say to the Corinthians? Flee from sexual immorality. Flee from it. Now, it's part of our sinful nature, of course, to want to flirt with sin, not to flee from it. But Joseph sets the example for us. He ran. There are times, aren't there, where we simply need to run, not to to wait, not to hang around, to get out of that situation that is causing us to be tempted. And let me say he ran at some personal cost to himself too. He knew that there would be great consequences for his refusal to uh, agree to this woman's demands. But he resists temptation fifthly, I suggest, because he's more concerned about his purity than his prospects. Uh, You've heard the saying, I'm sure, hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. Now, I am not going to make a comment as to how true that is generally, particularly in a mixed congregation such as this. I'd like to get out alive. But clearly, it is true, isn't it, in Potiphar's wife's case. With the damning evidence of Joseph's cloak in her heart, she's been scorned. She does not like it. Joseph runs off into the garden. She cries rape, and well, all hell breaks loose. Look, she says, Genesis 39, 14, this Hebrew has been brought to us to make sport of us. He came in here to sleep with me, but I screamed. When he heard me scream for help, he left his cloak beside me, and he ran out of the house. And the rest, as the saying goes, is history. Potiphar gets to hear about it. He burns with anger. doesn't even bother to find out if his wife is telling the truth. He simply throws Joseph into prison. And Joseph knows that there will be a price to pay for refusing Potiphar's wife. But he runs from the scene. He flees from the temptation, knowing full well that he will have to face the consequences of what is a a godly decision, but a decision that goes against uh, the culture. He could have said yes. On a pragmatic level, he probably would have got away with it. He would have had a good time. Potiphar would never have found out. Why would his wife tell him? Nobody would, would tell. But here is a man who I suggest is more concerned for his purity than his prospects. He would rather be pure and be judged impure than be impure and judged pure. I wonder how, if we have at times maybe put our prospects before purity or godliness. Very difficult, isn't it, in employment situations. I remember when I was working in local government once just having a situation where if I, I, I could have advanced my prospects by simply agreeing to do something which was just slightly underhand. And by God's grace, I was able to resist that. And it it damaged my prospects. But I had a clear conscience before God. So there we have it. On one level, there's an account of a godly man living in an alien land, resisting temptation at great personal cost to himself. And I suggest that each of us here in our own situations, our own temptations, whatever it is that we're facing, we can maybe put these principles into practice. We too are aliens and strangers in a foreign land, says Peter. 
uh, we too uh, have to resist temptation. We have to go against the, uh, the, the tide of the culture, which would sweep us into all kinds of things which are displeasing to God. But secondly, I want us to notice, to zoom out a little bit and look at the bigger picture, and to see, secondly, the ways of God hidden behind this story in order to help us cope with temptation. God is the real hero of the Bible, and one of the most important questions to ask when we come to any passage of the Bible is not immediately, what does this say to me, but what does this teach me about God? And the clues as to what we're meant to learn about God, they come at the beginning and the end of the passage. So look with me at verse 2. We read there, the Lord was with Joseph, and he prospered. And then take a look at the closing verse of the chapter, the end of verse 23, We read something a little bit similar there. The Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. Now, when you find the same idea or phrase repeated in a passage in that way, at the beginning and the end, it's always worth taking note. It's a little literary device called an inclusio or an inclusion. It uh, operates quite often in Hebrew literature. Uh, The best way I can describe it is, is as a pair of bookends in a library holding together a section of books on a similar theme. And that's really what an inclusion does in in Hebrew writing. It holds together and summarizes everything in the middle, and it gives you a massive clue as to the point we're meant to learn about God from this passage, or what the uh, passage is about. Genesis 39, I suggest, is giving us a picture of what it might look like for a believer in this life when the Lord is with them and is blessing them. And in a number of ways, it's quite a surprising picture, isn't it? Yes, there are a number of outward signs of God's presence with Joseph and his blessing on his life. He's given success in his work, we're told, so much so that he greatly impresses the boss and is promoted. That blessing extends to Potiphar and his household. Potiphar, an unbeliever. Uh, We don't know how that uh, pans out, but uh, possibly in uh, evidence in healthy, productive uh, harvests, bounties, harvests, and healthy livestock, we don't know. We can only imagine. But despite God's presence with Joseph and his blessing on his life and work, the facts are that Joseph is still a slave. He's still being torn away from his family. He's still living in a foreign land with no prospect of freedom or marriage, no rights. And despite showing a great measure of personal integrity by resisting sexual temptation, he ends up being falsely accused and thrown into prison. Now, I don't know about you, but that's not what I would call a blessed life. Is that what you would call a blessed life? And if it weren't for that little literary device, we might be tempted to ask ourselves, well, where is God in all this? Why has he seemingly deserted Joseph in Egypt? Why has he allowed all all this suffering in his life? Joseph honors God by resisting temptation. Why doesn't God honor him? Oh, yes, of course, we know how the, the story works out in the end, but Joseph didn't know that. Why doesn't God intervene? Why didn't he miraculously keep him from being thrown into prison? But here I suggest to you is a picture of what life might look like for a believer in this world when the Lord is with us and blessing us. And the simple fact is, it will not always be pretty. It won't always be easy. The life of faith is very tough at times. We're called to endure, persevere. Very old-fashioned words amongst Christians today. But those are gospel words. We're called to endure and persevere. So I want to suggest very briefly two major lessons we can take to heart about God. Firstly, this. God often chooses to bless us in the midst of difficult circumstances rather than to place us into happier ones. At the beginning of the chapter, Joseph is sold as a slave to 
part of his household. Hardly what we would call a blessing. But what do we read? The Lord was with Joseph and he prospered. That is, he prospered in his state of slavery. God didn't immediately rescue him out of slavery. At the end of the chapter, we get the same thing. Joseph is falsely accused and thrown into prison. Again, not what I would consider to be a blessing in worldly terms. But again, what do we read? Verse 21, the Lord was with him. The Lord showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. Do you see how, again, God's blessing comes to Joseph in the midst of his difficult circumstances, not by immediately delivering them out of them. I have to confess that at times I am guilty of measuring God's blessing in my life by my temporal circumstances, my degree of physical comfort, my personal well-being and health. But here in Genesis 39, the blessing of God, well, it's demonstrated through Joseph's integrity, through his godly conduct and character, through his hard work, his reliability, his faithfulness in the workplace, and in his case as a slave, and yes, God does ultimately rescue him from slavery, but not for many, many years. And that should lead us perhaps to a question that we can each ask ourselves this morning. Am I prepared to trust God in the midst of whatever personal circumstances I find myself in this morning? Whatever it is, it may be a, a massive health issue, it may be fear for the future, it may be grief, bereavement over a, a lost loved one. Maybe some difficulty in a relationship, some difficulty with family. Am I prepared to trust God, to believe that he's with me, even if perhaps there's not a lot of evidence of his blessing right now, to trust that the Lord is able to bless me in the midst of my trials, in the midst of my temptations, and that sometimes it does better serve his purposes for our sanctification, for God to bless us in the difficulty rather than to immediately deliver us out of the difficulties. And finally, and very briefly, the second truth I want us to learn is that God moves in mysterious ways as wonders are performed. I'm sure all of you will recognize that is a line from a great William Cowper hymn. It encapsulates very well, I think, a truth that we can see working out in the overall account of the life of Jesus. It's always good to ask with a passage in the Bible, uh, what is its purpose in being here? How does this fit in to the overall sweep of salvation history? Uh, we know how things all work out. Joseph didn't know that. But as we read on in Genesis, we know what comes next. We learn, don't we, that this was all part, actually, of God's providential plan and provision for his people. So Joseph's ultimate rise to power becomes God's means of saving not only the Egyptian nation from famine, but God, uh, Joseph's own family from starvation. Humanly speaking, Joseph's whole family would have been wiped out had they not been able to obtain food from Joseph in Egypt. And of course, it's only as a result of Joseph's family moving to Egypt in search of food that the nation of Israel is formed through uh, the Exodus. Lord uh, Jesus is, of course, a direct descendant of Judah, Joseph's brother. You see how it all fits in? And so I want you to imagine for a moment that Joseph had chosen not to resist the advances of uh, Potiphar's wife, if he'd simply decided to go for it, gotten away with it. On a human level, it would have altered the whole course of salvation history. No fleeing from sexual immorality by Joseph would have meant no screams from Potiphar's wife, no damning evidence of Joseph's cloak in her hands, uh, no furious Potiphar, no Joseph being thrown into prison, and not any old prison, you notice, but the, pr the prison where King Pharaoh's prisoners happened to be confined. 
No meeting with the cupbearer and the baker. No opportunity to interpret Pharaoh's dreams. No famine averted. No reunion with Joseph's family. No settling in Egypt. No exodus. No promised land. And so we can go on right through to the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not saying, of course, that the whole gospel hinges on Joseph's purity and resisting of temptation. But we are, I believe, meant to see God's hand at work in hidden ways through Joseph's life, through his resisting of temptation, through his godliness in difficult circumstances to ultimately bring about God's uh, salvation purposes. So, of course, when we get to the end of the book, we realize that Joseph himself is uh, led into this secret. You might want to just turn over as we draw to a close to Genesis chapter 50. This is when uh, Joseph has revealed himself to his brothers. His brothers are in some fear. How on earth is Joseph going to react? Is he going to hold bitterness and a grudge at the way uh, that he was sold into slavery? Well, this is what uh, Joseph says. Uh, Chapter 50, verse 19, he says to his brothers, Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. And who is to say what God may not do through your life or my life as we stand firm in difficult times, as we seek to be godly and show integrity in our daily lives, as we struggle on sometimes in the midst of our difficult circumstances? Who to say that God may not choose to use that in the life of another person, the witness of my life, bringing them through to faith, through to salvation? I mentioned that uh, William Cowper him earlier. William Cowper, I'm sure you'll know, is a, is a man who suffered from several periods of very deep, very dark depression. But the incredible thing was that when he came out of one of his periods of depression, he would very often write the most amazing hymns, including this one. God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep and unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. You fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Listen to this one. Judge not the Lord by feeble saints, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face.